it turns out the crazier your headlines are, the more people click on it, the more people share it, which ended up becoming a really big deal when it came to distribution of news. It wasn't on your doorstep anymore. It was, did it get a whole bunch of likes on Facebook or Twitter and therefore get seen on other people's feeds? So the business model incented madness and the competition incented narrow-mindedness. And when you combine that, everybody started narrow cast and become more and more extreme. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Arjun Morthy. He is CEO and co-founder of The Factual. The Factual strives to provide unbiased news using an algorithm that rates over 10,000 news articles daily for how informative they are. You can subscribe to their newsletter, look at their website for trending topics or to filter articles, or use their smartphone apps to read the news. And they also have a podcast with some excellent guests. Arjun has an interesting story about how he came to found his company and a tale about how things are going with it. You should listen. So after a quick word from my sponsor, Arjun Murthy with The Factual. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Arjun, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? So I'm a co-founder and CEO of a small company called The Factual, and The Factual is a news service that helps people get unbiased news on trending topics. We use some interesting technology to rate how informative, objective, and neutral news articles are from thousands of sources across the political spectrum and help people see well-informed viewpoints from different angles so they understand the complexity of the stories in the news. I've been doing this for about six years. It's great. We have thousands of readers of our daily newsletter, app, website, etc. And it's really fulfilling. I'm delighted to be doing it. Prior to this, I've done a few different startups. By training, I'm a computer engineer and I went to business school at Stanford. Kind of lost my way along the way because I realized I actually really like building stuff. And so took me a while to get back to engineering. I've grown up all over the world. I was born in India. I grew up in Nigeria, Canada, then came to the US, lived in lots of places, New York, Boston, Philly, Seattle, the Bay Area. And so I've seen a lot of this wonderful nation. Maybe the last bit, I'm blessed with a wife, two kids, and my parents live with us. We live in the Bay Area and we have a happy family with a lovely lab for a dog. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> it doesn't sound like too bad of a life. What was it that your parents were doing that led you to so many different countries? Yeah, my father's an electrical engineer. This is back in 1960, Nigeria gained independence from the British Empire. 
Nigeria was looking to build up a lot of industries that were not just crude oil based because they knew they had crude oil, but they wanted to be a broader economy. They decided steel was one of the things they wanted to do because they had deposits of, I, I think it was bauxite and molybdenum, which are important in steel manufacturing. My dad was doing steel in India at a steel plant in Belai. And so this was a job opportunity that came up. And, you know, if you remember back in the 60s and 70s, India wasn't a particularly thriving economy per se. It was really mired in a lot of red tape. So anyone with a good degree like my dad had was looking for ways that they could advance economically and foreign opportunities like this were really interesting. So we came to Nigeria, we're there for 10 years, and it's politically a very unstable country. It's gone through a lot of coups and changes of powers. It can be quite violent at times. So at one point we decided, okay, this might be a, a too harrowing for us. Applied to immigration in lots of countries, and Canada was the one that came through. Went there, stayed 10 years. My dad switched to software, my mom became a teacher. And then as they got closer to retirement age, my dad still wanted to work a little bit more. And truthfully, the United States just offered the most opportunity for someone like him. A lot of people who are not immigrants may not realize this, but the U.S. is incredibly welcoming to people from other nations, regardless of what you look like, how old you are. I'm not saying it's perfect, but the U.S. is more welcoming in terms of, can you do the job? Great, come on in. Like That's really where we think. And so my father got a very good job and sort of did a bunch of work in software and the IT industry for the last 10 years of his life. So that's how he got here. I went to university in Canada. And then again, the United States just has tremendous opportunity. So I came here for work. So University of Waterloo. Yes, that's right. Computer engineering. How was that program? How was it for you? It was fantastic. It was very, very tough. I slogged in it. I had a great time. I had really good friends, you know, my classmates and, and people that lived in my dorm and stuff. We had a great time. So it was a very formative period, but from an academic standpoint, very, very tough. I mean, it's meant to grind you into a paste. What's interesting is I really liked it because I like studying. I'm, I'm definitely a geek. I was actually very intimidated by my classmates who were just exceptional engineers. And I felt like a fraud for most of it because I'm not actually that good of an engineer. But weren't you valedictorian there? I was, but it's slightly different uh, in that uh, in Waterloo, valedictorian is an elected position by the student body. Ah, there you go. So, yes. So was, not smart, just popular. That's it. That's me. <laughs> I was not at the top of the class at all. And so I saw my other classmates who were really, really good engineers. And I was so intimidated when I left Waterloo, I didn't want to write code because I thought, what's the point? I'm never going to be as good as those guys. And that was quite a bad decision. I should have written code because it's what I trained for and Turns out I actually quite like writing code and building stuff. And you don't have to compare always with your classmates. I had a similar experience. I went to Yale and had a degree in computer science. At the time, I think only like 18, 20 people graduated with that degree. But some of them were just head and shoulders better at it than I was. I, I learned that there's levels, particularly in programming, where somebody can be 10 times as good as you or, or 100 times as good as you even if you're pretty decent. So I get that. <laughs> and of course, and, and you know, because I looked up your background, you started companies as well. So much of success is not determined based on how good an engineer you are, but how good you are at understanding customer pain points and solving customer pain points in a timely, affordable manner. By far more important than how fast and how clean your code is. Yes. Exactly. And so I think that I didn't quite understand. And my father being an engineer, he would tell me these things, but I don't think I fully grokked because it sounded kind of blah. You're like, don't you want to be the cool tech guy? It turns out that that's not all that you need to no. be successful. 
What I notice over and over is that an engineer with good communication skills can lead a organization in a way that somebody who's maybe more technical, but not as good talking. That's it. Yeah, 100%. They're complementary. We need all kinds of people on the team. And the communication part is not de minimis. It's not a liberal arts thing. It's an extraordinarily important bit of understanding a problem, really refining it down to requirements, explaining solutions. Yeah, there's tons. It's, it's, it's part of the actual solution. You went to Real Network. Was that where Maria Cantwell, Senator Cantwell was? That's right. Yeah. Maria Cantwell was on the management team when I was there. She started her Senate run when I was there. I met her a couple of times. I, I doubt she knows who I am. I was, I was like a junior most person at the company. How big was it when you were there? I joined when it was about 450 people. They had just gone public. So maybe 500 people. I left when there was about a thousand-ish people, I think. It was a really fun job straight out of school. I was doing audio and video, which is something that's just interesting and it's you know stimulating, exciting. So I loved it. The company itself was rather poorly run. I think most people at Real Networks would admit that these days. It had a strange set of personalities there. So not great in that sense, but I'm really glad I did it. And then I went off and joined a startup soon after. What was the startup? Oh, it was called I Am Logic. It was a security software company in Boston. It did instant messaging security. I was there for two years. I joined when I was employee number eight. We sold it when there were 110 people. The CEO there, this guy named uh, Francis D'Souza, is incredible, incredible. He went on to be a very senior person at Symantec, who was the acquirer, and now is CEO of Illumina Corporation, which is one of the most successful biotech companies of all time. He's also on the board of Disney. He's just amazing. And so I worked with the guy for those two years and everything he ever said, I learned something from it. What was so amazing about him? He could convince you of almost anything. He was very logical. He was witty. He was charming. He was downright intelligent. Yeah, he was all the things you want in a CEO. Could it be describing either of us, right? (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's so funny. Nathaniel, now that I've done the startup, you know, and I've been out trying to raise money and you realize what a kick in the teeth it is. I mean, it's an absolute face kicking publicly every day. And I used to think, what's the big deal about this? Like, you know, you have some credentials, you put a story together, you go out. Now I know how tough it is. And so every time that Francis succeeded and my previous boss, which is Brian Halligan at HubSpot succeeded, I know how good they were, how incredibly good they were at stitching together a compelling story, simply, cleanly, and just hammering it again and again, relentlessly. I have some suspicion of people who have that knack. If they can sell you on anything, they can sell you on something that sucks. Someone like that can probably talk venture capital out of, into almost any project, right? What you need is the person who has a great idea and those skills. It's true. And so I think to the credit of both the, the guys, and I know them reasonably well, both Brian and, and Francis, they're good human beings. They really are trying to make the world a better place. So they had good ideas and the conviction they had in their ideas was just, it'd be hard to fake. I mean, maybe they were at times, I don't know, but. Yeah, yeah, hopefully not. Yeah. I think you're advantaged when you believe in what you're saying in the world, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so when you hear stories about startups and and you just sort of see the headlines, fundraising and, you know, scandal and blah, 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 you miss actually the real story, which is how incredibly committed people are in those early years where nobody believes them and they're supposed to fail every day. And they go out and they slug it out 
And they just really like sheer willpower. That's honestly how most startups are succeeding. It's just willpower. And the f- curve is flat at that point. Yeah. Generally, right? Like there's nothing trending up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's really amazing to see the people that succeed in this. I have nothing but admiration for anyone who's accomplished any milestone on the startup journey now. I'm like, don't worry if you didn't get the IPO or you failed. It's okay, man. You got to this point or you know, you raised that. Good for you. That's a that's a win. Eighth uh, employee, did you end up with stock to benefit in that case? Yeah. I did, yeah, but it didn't amount to much. Uh, you know, the actual exit was decent, but not huge. And I think most people who have been in the startup world know by now that if you're not part of the founding team or at least management, you really don't make out on the exit of a company. Do you think that's a mistake in the way that founders are structuring things? In ones that I've known well, there is an amazing difference between the small number of strategic people and the rest of the staff in compensation? I think actually the structuring is okay because in your early days, when you're the junior employees, the truth of the matter is, first of all, be happy that you've got a good job. It pays well and you're doing some interesting work and working with some talented people. That's really what your expectation should be. In the early days, you're there to learn. You're there to work hard. While I did a ton of work for that company, and yes, it was important to the outcome, If I'm being completely honest, much of the result of like why we were sold and what we were sold for really does accrue to that management team who were the ones who had to build the story and get out there and sell the customers and do all those things. So I had some, you know, earnings from it. I'm very thankful for it. I never expected any, and I think it's okay. In the later days, if you sort of think about the risk that you take on as you start a company, and particularly as you're more senior, the risk is higher. And so you expect the reward to be higher. So all I would say is in your first, call it 10 years of your working career, it's very much you're there to learn. You should value the knowledge you gain, the people you meet, the mentors you gain, the experience, the industry understanding, all these sorts of things. That's the value. Like if you did get magically half a million dollars from some payout, congratulations. I don't know if you necessarily earned it. And I'm not sure that that's actually as critical at that phase of your life as it maybe becomes in your 30s, 40s, and 50s when you have a family and you're maybe starting your own business. It's an interesting perspective. Having talked to employees who have some resentment about that, I have pretty mixed feelings and lack of clarity about how one should structure things and how broadly you should share. But I I get your point. Tell me about what you did subsequent to that. I saw on your resume something about Intel Capital for a short period of time. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So after I am logic, I went to Stanford for business school and, you know, it's all the rage in business school to join uh, VC, especially at Stanford. And so did you like business school? I did. I really did. For me, it was all new, the academic side, because I did engineering. So all the business stuff was brand new and I devoured it. Like I said, I liked learning. So I really enjoyed classes. My classmates were great. The social part of business school is really amazing. It's so much fun. I sometimes say it's a it's a retirement at an age when you can actually enjoy it. And it's just a blast. It's totally- I, I've listened to the entrepreneur interviews that they do as part of that program. Have you listened to that at all? I don't think I, so. I guess I they come in to speak at the at Stanford oh, Business yeah, School. Yeah, it's called View from the Top. Yeah, they'll do that sometimes. Is that the one? I, I, I It might be. Anyway, I've listened to it in sort of podcast form and some pretty amazing people come in and and sometimes pretty inspiring about the things that they've created. Yeah. I think what's funny is 
because Nathaniel, you and I have started companies and businesses, what you actually realize is nothing you learn in business school prepared you for that experience. So business school really, as it's done today, is preparing you for middle and senior management in large companies. It's not really preparing you for I took only one class in a business school at the Sloan School. I took one class in entrepreneurship. I didn't even take it for credit, but I sat in on it. That may have been the one class there that was contrary to that point, but I, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, there's one at Stanford called Managing Growing Enterprises, which is very much a small business thing. And I really loved the class, but even there, I would say it's hard to remember a lesson I took away from that, that I then applied subsequently. The reality of building a business is it's just a lot of pain and you just have to learn a lot on the job. A really good business person actually would never go to business school. They would take the money they would have invested in business school and put it into the business and have built that. Do you think that that credential has been part of being able to sell people on things that you want to do or on yourself and your skills? Yeah, it definitely counts. No question. You throw around the word Stanford, it helps. For me, like I said, I actually did learn a lot from the academics. So the finance and accounting side, I knew nothing and it came out much stronger than that, which I really like. Fundamentally, I think it gives you two things. One is it gives you confidence. It gives you confidence that you can walk in and if you don't know the situation, but you work really hard and you listen really well, you will figure it out. Sometimes it's overconfidence, but on the whole, let's say that you get confidence from it, which is valuable. You can value it how you want, but it's valuable. The second thing is it gives you an incredible array of friends. People say you get the network, which is a very cold way of saying it, I think. If you invested in your classmates, you get really amazing friends. And so you get, you know, out of Stanford, 360 people that are in a lot of different industries and a lot of different parts of the world. And they're always interested in helping you. And not even just your class. Honestly, the alumni are great. If I call up an alumni at Stanford saying, hey, I'm trying to understand this. Can you please help me out? They'll be like, yeah, sure. And so imagine you suddenly have 8,000 people who are out there who want to help you. That's pretty cool. That, I think, is the value of going to these fancy schools. And then to a lesser degree, for people like me, the academics was very good, but that's it. Yeah, I've heard similar stories from lots of people. Oh, I'm sorry, and I didn't even answer your question, Daniel. So yeah, in the middle of that, I said, uh, so everyone's saying, you know, VC is really interesting. I have a tech background. I thought that'd be kind of cool. I tried really hard to get a VC job. It's very, very tough to get an internship in VC. I did land one at Intel Capital, which is corporate venture, which is arguably kind of a, a, a different beast. I worked with a very talented investment manager, Nancy Kamei, there, and I learned a lot from her. But fundamentally, I walked out saying, VC is not for me. I'm not an investor. And I think it's a very important distinction for people to make in their lives early. You can sort of group jobs by two types. You either build it or advise people who build it. Well, I think one more is build it, operate it. The difference between managing and building the initials, the startup phase, there are not everybody who can go through that whole thing. Like for me, there came a point where I was much happier not running an enterprise. Yeah. That's exactly it. Yeah. So I think sort of operating versus advising is the distinction that I try to make. And I realized after that experience at Intel Capital that I'm an operator. It's not glamorous at all, but that's kind of what I like doing and advising slash investing. Maybe at some point in my life, in later stages, I might get to that. But at that point in my life, early 30s, wasn't really what I wanted to do. But you did a Boston consulting. <laughs> I did, yeah. 
So I, I hadn't fully formed my vision there. I, I said, okay, I don't think investing is for me. And to be totally clear as well, Nathaniel, it's not like people were giving me jobs in VC industry. So let's be really honest. Like, it's not like I was turning them down. <laughs> I didn't exactly have the options either. I thought consulting would be kind of a nice middle ground. I'd get to see a lot of industries and primarily because I thought tech, man, tech is so narrow, so dull. I should try something else because that's all I've ever done. So I thought consulting was a good way to see a lot of industries. And so I joined BCG in New York for two years and it was a very interesting experience. I did see a lot of industries and I very quickly came to the conclusion that, oh my God, I really hate consulting. And, <laughs> and I'm really, I don't think I'm great at it anyways, but I really hate it. And so I need to get out as quickly as I could. Where were you politically at this phase of your life? What were you thinking about society and government and so on? As a raging liberal, I think. I think you can probably look up old tweets of mine around that time. I'll tell you a couple of very illustrative ones. In 2010 or so, I saw that documentary about the financial crisis and how it took out Iceland's banking system and all these other things and how banks sort of screwed over a lot of economies. I wrote this letter to the dean of Stanford Business School saying, our curriculum is garbage. It is enshrining and pushing forth these ideas in finance that are underpinning all kinds of terrible things in society. You need to stop this. I published it. It's on my blog. You still read it. The dean was very nice at the time, Garth Sloan. He actually wrote to me and had a very thoughtful reply. But I think I tweeted afterwards and said, I will never own banking stocks. These companies are so corrupt. So that's the kind of person I was. You know, not anti-capitalist, but very principled against. What was the response that you got to that, that you mentioned? The dean wrote back and he said, look, I agree with uh, some of the points you made. We have changed the curriculum, actually. And so without getting too academic, the main thing I dislike is that debt is treated differently than equity when it comes to taxes. And effectively, you incent organizations to take on debt because debt gets favorable tax treatment. But debt basically increases risk. It magnifies all kinds of disasters. It's just bad. It takes down a lot of companies. Exactly. And so what I was saying is, we are teaching this in school that you should optimize the debt equity ratio to optimize for the income statement and taxes, talking nothing about the risk that we are taking on collectively as a society and look at what it does to us. How can we be doing this if they're responsible? So he said, I agree with you. I think the, the point is good. We are, we are changing our pedagogy on this. And he said, some things I can't change. It's not that easy. Like we've got, you know, 60, 70 years of teaching behind us. So he was very understanding. I actually quite liked the dean of the time, Garth Sloaner. He's not there as dean anymore. You seem to be implying, though, that that youthful liberalism has somewhat ameliorated. Where are you now? I think I'm, I'm center slash conservative, Republican, whatever you want to call it. You know, there's an element of people's political outlook changes over time as they age. This is a pretty well understood relationship that when you're young, you're more likely to be liberal. And when you're older, you're more likely to be conservative. So it could just be that it was the natural course of progression that, you know, I've- Well, you're still young. So what are we talking about here? <laughs> I'm 45, you know, I'm <laughs> middle age. I think once you get married, have children, own property, pay lots and lots of taxes, start a small business, you just understand a lot more about, honestly, how difficult it is to make money and build a healthy community. I'm 56. I'm still liberal. So, and I've done those <laughs> things. Well, good. So yeah, it's obviously not, it's not an absolute thing. If I had to sort of pin down what's driving it, 
there are a couple of factors. One is starting the business definitely just was eye-opening on how brutal it is. Which business are we talking about? Uh, sorry, the factual. So the first two, three years, we just failed continuously. And I blew a lot of my personal savings. I, I want to just get through a couple more things. And I'm going to ask you about that story. I'm curious about the time that you spent at HubSpot. You referenced it before as somebody that you liked working for. My knowledge about HubSpot is limited to having used it for my company for a year, maybe, and also having read the Dan Lyons book, which you might be aware of, the expose from the inside, which was amusing. Yes, it was. Yeah, so I was there for six years. I was, I think, employee 175 or something like that. Not that and, you're counting. Yeah, exactly. And I left when there were about 3,000 people. So that was a meteoric rise. We'd gone public. I worked on the management team for all that time, and I reported to the CEO, Brian Halligan, for most of it. And he's just an incredible person. I, I really I admire Brian. I don't always agree with him on everything. In fact, we argued and disagreed on a lot of things. But I never once doubted Brian's heart was in the right place. He always saw for the company. He always took the long road. He really tried to balance very conflicting constraints as best he could. I never once doubted his intuition or his, his intention, even if I disagreed with his outcome. So it's really great to work with someone like that. The whole management team was just amazing. That initial management team stars, all of them. And I'd work for any of those guys in a heartbeat. HubSpot's inbound marketing enterprise now with a CRM also. That's right. And, yeah. yeah. So they started out as marketing software for small businesses, really positioning that the way we do marketing has changed. Don't keep spamming people and hitting them with ads. Instead, write great content. They'll find you because of search and things like that. So that was their main thesis. They expanded from marketing to sales. They also have some customer support stuff now. It's a big suite. Effectively saying if their Envision, and Brian said this, by the way, 10 years ago, I think the first three months I'd ever met him, he had this vision saying, we will be the software to run small businesses. All of it. That was always his vision. So he's building towards that. And An integrated package would be a very useful thing. There's various attempts at it, but I haven't seen for small business the, the great fit yet. That You have to piece it together. Yeah. So they did an incredible job. And I actually, so I joined as VP product, but then three months in, not even three months, two months in, we bought this other company called Performable, and the CEO there was this man named David Cancel, who's just incredible, phenomenal product guy. And so he became chief product officer. And so at that time, Brian said, hey, do you want to stay in product or do you want to do something else? I said, um, I don't know. He said, look, you said you want to be CEO. If you do, you should probably learn how to sell something once in your life. And I said, that's a fair point. And he said, why don't you try BizDev? It's kind of dipping your toe in sales. So I did BizDev. I think I did an okay job. I don't think I was amazing at it. But I still learned a ton. Uh, and then after, when I left after six years and I want to do my own thing, it really helped that I had done BizDev. I had a lot more confidence about sales. So yeah, it was a great run at HubSpot. Yeah, that sounds like it. What was Civic Owl? So Civic Owl was and still is actually the legal entity that the factual runs under. So just from a legal, I mean, from a LinkedIn standpoint, we just split the two up. But Civic Owl was the company we always wanted to do something in new. So the thesis that we broadly had when we started Civic Owl slash the factual. When is, you're saying we, what, who is we? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, my co-founder and myself. My co-founder is Ajoy. He's the CTO and he's the tech brains behind everything. So the two of us, our, our main observation was the news serves a really important role in society, but boy, 
is it maligned lately? No one seems to trust it. People are not even sure why they're reading it. And so, and the business model is just being demolished. So anytime there's change in consumer sentiment and change in or upheaval in the business model, there's room for innovation. We said, sounds good. I've been a news geek my whole life. And when I was a paper boy, that was my first job ever when I was 12. And so I was very passionate about the news. And I said, I think we could do something interesting here. He agreed. We had some cool ideas. The first one was, you know, people kept saying, what's the point of reading the news? You can't do anything about it. So he said, aha, what if we gave you this button, which we called the give a damn button. And it was a button that appeared on, on an article. You'd click it and it would look at the article you're reading and figure out the subject. And it would look at your location and said, oh, Nathaniel, you're in Vermont and you're reading this article on criminal justice. Here are your local, state, and federal representatives. Here's what they've said about this issue. Click here to call them, email them, donate to them, whatever. And people thought, that's really cool. And so we built the tech. It mostly worked. And then no one used it. And we said, hey, what the heck? You guys said it was cool. Why aren't you using it? And they said, well, you want me to do something with this? I don't even know uh, what I would say. I'm not sure if I know enough about this topic. I don't know if I'm even reading an article that's any good. I don't want to share that and look stupid. So I said, ah, so you want to know something about a topic first. And so then we pivoted to saying, let's help you find high quality news so you can be educated on a topic. And so we wrote this algorithm that rates how informative news is, which is the genesis of the factual. And then we went on to build the company. There's a bunch of these um, enterprises that are working to fill the gap in unbiased news. You've probably run into some of them. I just talked to Isaac Saul at Tangle News. I don't know if you've yeah, run into yeah. him. Yeah. There's, there's all sides. There's a bunch of different people who are, who are working to either present two sides, present their own opinion. There's news organs rating groups that attempt to like chart whether so that you can look up, is this, is this news entity on the left or the right or the middle? What is your theory about like what's gone wrong with the news that you're trying to, to cure? Yeah. So first of all, the problem is so very large. I salute everyone that's in this space. So Saul at Tangle and the folks at All Sides were kind of the granddaddies of the space and have done a great job. Every one of us is fighting the same battle, and I'm delighted to be in the same space as them, honestly. Okay, so the problem with news is multifaceted, but I basically think of it as a couple of things. The first is we used to have a really simple news ecosystem. We had five, 10 sources we all sort of knew, talked about, maybe you watched the nightly news, you got a newspaper on your doorstep, you kind of understood the lay of the land. And the business model is simple. You paid a small subscription fee usually, and there's a bunch of ads. Hey, that's great. Along comes the internet and it blows away both of those things. Suddenly you have thousands of sources with all kinds of viewpoints, and they're all competing for your attention because the business model is advertising, is no longer subscriptions. So this is, you know, right around the turn of the century. And so everyone competing for the same audience's attention means what are they going to do? They're going to find more and more extreme ways to grab your attention. And they very quickly realize that there's two ways you can do it. You either appeal to a very, very small segment of the population because that's who you're going to capitalize and win consistently. And then you can sell ads to that segment because you can tell advertisers, you want the segment, I got them. 
And then two is you want to keep getting that segment day after day after day. It turns out the crazier your headlines are, the more people click on it, the more people share it, which ended up becoming a really big deal when it came to distribution of news. It wasn't on your doorstep anymore. It was, did it get a whole bunch of likes on Facebook or Twitter and therefore get seen on other people's feeds? So the business model incented madness and the competition incented narrow-mindedness. And when you combine that, everybody started narrow cast and become more and more extreme. But the majority of the public was actually not like that. What news organizations missed was the people that click and share and, and comment and do all these sorts of things, the very, very involved are actually the minority of the population. The majority of the population are really too busy to do any of that stuff. They've got bills to pay, kids to feed, a couple jobs to run, the car's broken down. Like They'll read news, maybe occasionally forward or share something, but for the most part, they're like, just, okay, I got other things to do. And so the aha that we had at the factual was, man, if you're just looking for the news, like you just want the facts, it's actually pretty hard to get it because there are all these people that are narrow casting crazy ideas. You have to now sift through all of that, find the ones that are logical, understand that they're really trying to narrow cast. So therefore you need a few different views and then put it all together and like, oh, that's the whole story. Okay, I get it. And that takes a lot of work. And so fundamentally the job that we are doing, and I think that Tangle and a lot of these other people are doing it all sides, is can we make that search simpler? Can I save you the time of weeding through all the junk and the crazy ideas from all over the political spectrum and give you the complete story as quickly as possible with all the angles? That's what they do. That's what we do. So are you a subscription model then? We are. Yes. A very low cost subscription because we wanted to be affordable for everyone. Tell me about the, like, it sounded like the path to building this was not smooth as it never is. Tell me about like the the startup phase and how you conceived of this and how things went forward. I alluded to earlier, you know, our first idea was that give a damn button and that failed. And people said, hey, we actually really want to be educated first. We built this algorithm to rate how informative news was. And so our algorithm is particularly interesting. I wouldn't say it's, you know, from a marketing standpoint, Nathaniel, we say, oh, it's AI and all the stuff. And I mean, it's fancy. There's some ML there, but some of that's just marketing. The truth is, we just took what people want from news and turned it into software. So we asked people, what do you think makes a good news article? And every time we asked, they said about the same four things. You know, I kind of want it to be really well-researched, lots of sources. I mean, isn't that what news is, sources? I don't want it to be too opinionated. Everything's opinionated. Please cut it out. Let me reach my own opinions. I want it to be written by someone who knows what they're talking about. Someone who really understands the topic, not someone who writes about politics one day and sports the next. I mean, what do they know? And then I want it to be from a reputable source, not some fly-by-night Macedonian site that's, you know, working me for clicks. And we took those four things and we turned it into software. And we have this algorithm that rates articles on how informative and unbiased they are. And we do it in a transparent fashion. Everything about the company, as best I've been able to, is transparent how we built the ratings engine, why it is not biased, liberal, or conservative the way many other rating systems are, because we didn't train it saying the New York Times is good or a set of New York Times articles are good because that's pointless. Then the system just learned that. You can see the rating. You can click on it. You can see all the details behind it. 
It's not going to give you the math per se, but it shows you all the factors. And so it's really saying, look, I'm not saying our system's perfect by no means, but it's a set of criteria that we apply consistently and transparently. And if you agree with the criteria that we're looking for, then you're going to like the outcome here. Um, and so that's the technology side of it. But man, the path to building the business, sort of the major milestones of every business are, first, you've got to build something that people like. That's much, much harder than people realize. We had this interesting technology. It's a big jump from nice technology, who cares? And so we had to package it into products that people wanted. And we tried an app for a long time, and that was a train wreck. And we tried a website. That was not even a hit. That was a bunt. Then we did a newsletter, and that was a real hit. Then we came back, and we fixed the website. That got better. Then we went back and fixed the app, and that got really much better. It's a big, circuitous route. And we packaged all of this uh, in a premium offering. So there's a free offering, there's a paid offering, and the paid is 5 bucks a month or 25 bucks a year. Very affordable. And honestly, the thing that I'm most proud of, Nathaniel, of this whole thing is who our customers are. So we've got thousands of paying customers in all 50 states, in 3,000 zip codes. And periodically, we pull them. Everything's anonymous. We don't want to know that much about our customers because we don't advertise to them. So I don't really need to know about you. But periodically, I'll pull them just to get some feedback. And we found out that people are CEOs. Some people are homeless and unemployed, and they pay for our stuff. We have pastors, surprisingly, a whole pile of ministers that pay for us. We have ex-convicts. There's a woman out in Virginia who's an ex-con who we, we conduct polls that are anonymous, but in the comments, you can say whatever you want as long as they're clean and they're rated for quality. And she said, I'm an ex-con, and this is why I believe ex-cons should or should not vote. We have got a grab bag of the United States population, truly a cross-section, I think. And it reaffirms our thesis that most people just want the facts. Just give them the facts and save them time. They're very happy and they'll pay for it. You said a lot. Let me ask you some questions about, about it. One is, um, so you have this algorithm that, uh, based on the four things that people say that they're looking for, when you run the algorithm, what sources does it choose in real life? Like where, where is it actually finding the articles mostly that meet this criteria? Yeah. So it's a crawler, much like a, a search engine has a crawler. It's got a list of thousands of sites and it crawls them. It looks at RSS feeds, Twitter feeds, et cetera. It just pulls every article it can. We also have a Chrome extension, a browser but, extension. But where, the, where does the good news that you're finding typically come from? Ah, that's such a good question, Nathaniel. So one of the big ahas that we had, you know, when we wrote the algorithm, we we're like, yeah, big whoop, all this mumbo jumbo. What if it just ultimately recommends the Times and the Journal? Like, what have we really proven then? But because the algorithm doesn't look at popularity metrics. It has no interest in likes, hearts, tweets, comments, even backlinks, which is what Google looks at. And it's really a form of popularity because most people link to the most popular site. We don't look at any of that. We don't care who linked to you. We care who you link to, who are your sources. So the net of it is, if you know a topic really well and write on it consistently as an author, and it's very well sourced and minimally opinionated, you will score highly in our system. And so what that does is it actually highlights oftentimes smaller news sites that really specialize in topics and know it very well. And they will outrank the bigger guys like the Times and the Journal. So I'll give you a few examples. 
um, foreign policy, military stuff, right? Very much in the news the last few months. If you want truly mind-blowing stuff, there's a site called War on the Rocks. Bunch of former war correspondents, I think largely AP and Reuters, but I mean, just crazy good. That site will beat the times. You want civil liberties, um, pick your battle, the intercept from the left, reason from libertarian view, the American conservative on the right. Those three write very well on civil liberties. And again, they are proudly clear on their political alignment, but their sourcing is meticulous. Their details are rich. It's very, very good. And so the amazing thing about this is I often say we're living in the golden age of journalism. And people are like, what? Are you insane? I'm like, no, no. We have incredible writing and incredible reporters today. If we had the range of voices we have today, if we had them 20 years ago, things like the Iraq war might not have happened because a whole lot more reporters would have been willing to expose some of the inaccuracies in our intelligence reporting, for example. But we just didn't have the range of voices that we do now because it's the internet. Everyone can be out there. And we're hopeful that our algorithm surfaces lots of very intelligent, well-thought-out voices. Do you think you'll ever get to the point where people actually are writing in a certain way in order to serve your algorithm and to be picked? Yeah. Or is that happening? No, not yet. We're not, we're nowhere. Not big enough. Yeah, we're not yeah. big enough. Um, so yeah, will people game our algorithm? Yes. I, I mean, in that. a good way and not yeah. necessarily. Yeah. 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 So the nice thing about it is to some degree, I kind of want people to game the algorithm because look at what it's saying. It's saying write consistently on a topic, write deeply every time on that topic, maximally research, minimally opinionated and write on good sites. So if someone's doing this over and over and over again, they're going to gain reputation in our system. They'll probably know something about the topic by the time they're actually ranking in our system. I'm hopeful they'll actually write something good. So I think the optimization for our ratings can be mostly good. I do agree that there will be some nefarious actors. So we have a bunch of anti-fraud measures behind the scenes. There's some intelligent things that we can do around patterns that we can detect and stuff like that. And so there's some of that. And I think, frankly, as we get bigger and better, we'll have to do more of that. I mean, it's inevitable, I imagine, that some misinformation would come through this algorithm and potentially be elevated by what you do. How do you guard against that? Because there are people who sort of write things that are meant to look like real news that are complete garbage. Yeah. So let's split misinformation into two types. One is intentionally false information. They really want to screw over the public. Those kind of people tend not to rate well in our system. Their modus operandi would have basically proved their ratings being very bad in the past. And maybe in the future, they'll game our system. But for now, you actually are, you don't usually see outright false information very often. Okay. There's another kind of misinformation is I really was trying to do the right thing. I was sort of going with the best data. It turned out not to be true. I kind of went with what other people are saying, turned out not to be true. That I think of as more unintentional. I mean it. Yes, our system will sometimes, especially if you've had a long effort at writing on something, you might still get it wrong. So one of the things that we do 
is we start with a thesis that is different than a lot of news organizations, which is we assume readers are going to be smart. And I know this might be very contentious, but I believe that the majority of people will reach the right conclusions the majority of the time if given all the facts and a quiet place to think. And what I mean by this is we as an algorithm never elevate any single article as this is the greatest. This is it. This is gospel. You read this. You've got all the facts. No, no single article is gospel. You must read multiple viewpoints. It's a basic operating style of reading the news. We make that easier and that reduces the impact of any unintentional misinformation. Let me ask you about a particular example of that. So, so, so one of the giant dividing lines in our society right now is the interpretation of the 2020 presidential election where the president of the United States uh, put forth wholly untrue theories about who won and where the the bulk of the establishment press has been extremely clear that there was no significant voter fraud that would have affected the results. There are a lot of news organizations that are allied with the Trumpists who have contributed to what the left calls the big lie. And this is an example of a situation there really isn't two sides to this story. There was a campaign to promulgate total propaganda to try to keep the president in office who didn't deserve to be on one side. And then there's what the judges said and what all normal investigators have said. How did your uh, technology and your company stand up to that example? Yeah. So it's, it's a great question. So one of the interesting things is I disagree with the majority of polls that say there is a huge segment of the population that believes the 2020 election was stolen. I think the polls are wrong. I think our polling methodology as done by Gallup and Pew have serious limitations in the way they're administered. And we can go into a whole debate around phone-based polls and why I think the people who respond to those polls are just unusual. And I say this with a certain degree of confidence because the factual runs its own polls. Our polls are anonymous. They're one-question polls. And as I said, we have a readership that I think is roughly a cross-section of the country. And I say this because, again, it, one of the things- that, your, your readership cannot be the same as a random sample. It can't even be close. It's clearly selecting- a certain type of person. So just with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think um, you're correct. However, it couldn't be an interesting sample. I'm saying it's a very, uh, to say that the way that polls are done normally by polling organizations is a representative sample, I say is not entirely correct. What they choose to sample based on, for example, race or gender or something like that, are not necessarily identifying characteristics of the way someone is going to answer a question. It may be that socioeconomic class is more predictable. It may be that your geography is more predictable. You mean and what they try to balance their sample by? Correct, correct. Because they, they're trying to select randomly, and then they're sometimes adjusting exactly to and so you represent see everybody equally. Or, correct. And so if, yep. you, if you really look at their sample sizes, which are usually around about 1,000 to 2,000 people on a poll, and then you see how they had to correct and counterbalance for, well, we wanted to shift this, so we overbalance that, and we shift this and overbalance that. 
And overall, the kind of people who respond to this and choose to spend 30 minutes on the phone with someone they don't know at dinner time, it's just like a weird sample. I'm not saying ours is guaranteed to be representative. I'm saying I don't necessarily believe the other side is necessarily representative. But, but if but if a an attempt by lots of different professional polling operations is showing 40% of the United States as believing something that is pushed by the misinformation media, then you can guess that it's a lot of people. It might not be 45, it might be 35 or 30 or definitional, depending on what you mean by believe, but it's a lot. So, so let me get to that, right? We run these polls every day and we run it on all kinds of topics, the most divisive topics of all. And on many polls, we will match up to Pew and Gallup. So you ask, do you want Roe v. Wade to be overturned? We get the classic 70-30, 70 saying no, 30 saying yes. You say, do you want an assault weapons ban? Should open carry laws? You name it, we will run the poll. And very often we match up to those things. Now, time and again, we have run polls about the 2020 election. And most of our audience, 80% plus, 85% says, nope, the 2020 election is fine. I'm just curious. There is a huge breakdown on education on these issues that the the non-college educated and the college educated groups are wildly different on a lot of things right now. Do you think that you have a predominantly college educated reading audience? I mean, you got people who are reading, who are seeking unbiased opinion. That doesn't strike me as likely to be uncollege educated people. So this is the thesis that I'm proposing here, Nathaniel, and it's a difficult thesis to believe uh, because it flies in the, in the, sort of the idea of what humanity is about. First of all, we do have a decent segment that's not college educated, uh, as in college graduates. So in our poll of our customer base, it was 68% had some college education, which by the way, in the United States, I think it's like 50 something percent have some college education. So we're not that far off. A little heavier on college, but not crazy like 90% masters or PhDs, stuff like that. Second, I think what it really shows is that one of the interesting things about the way we conduct our polls and how even the commenting system and all this works is it's anonymous and there's no likes and no like followers and all these other vanity metrics of, you know, I'm so cool. When you take away that spotlight and when people just get to answer one question really quickly, um, and again, the same people that I'm telling you are very Republican at times in some of our polls. They consistently say, no, not significant voter fraud. By the way, even on right-leaning media, most people in America who are liberal think of conservative media as primarily Fox or Breitbart with a smattering of opinion guys, Tucker Carlson and Glenn Beck and all these guys. Those people do have decent influence. But Tucker Carlson, who I think is the biggest of all of these names, gets about 4 million viewers on a good night for primetime viewing. 4 million in a nation of 300 million plus, right? Or even call it 200 million adults, call it 100 million conservatives. He gets four. The influence of these folks is not as big as you think. And it turns out there's a whole bunch of other conservative outlets that are very thoughtful about this matter. So I mentioned the American conservative before, take the Washington Examiner, take Reason, take the Bulwark, the Dispatch, 
any number of these people. And yes, some of them are never Trumpers, but the point is a lot of people are reading those too. And they generally say that, of course, there's some reports of some voter fraud, but it's it's nowhere near in numbers that it could have changed out. So are you saying that your algorithm picked things from the Examiner and Bulwark rather than from Fox and Breitbart and these, is that what yeah, actually it happened? Does. Yeah. yeah. And by the way, it does it automatically because if you look at the writing style of Breitbart and Fox and another one that's uh, good is American Spectator. And when I say good, is like very hard, right? They're so wildly opinionated at times and so lacking in sourcing that they just don't score well. And particularly because they have a pattern of doing it over and over, the algorithm has since learned that these sources are not particularly great. Once in a while, Fox News will actually score well. Once in a while, even Breitbart can score well. They have a former WSJ writer that writes for them and he'll score well. So it's not to categorically say they're bad, but their overall ratings have not been good for a long time. And by the way, CNN is in the same bucket. CNN has a whole pile of issues in our system. So it doesn't pick those to promote. It picks these others. And when you see those, which are read by millions of people collectively, they're like, oh, good. We're not living in la-la land here. All I'm saying is that there is a segment of the population that believes that 2020 election is stolen. I think it is grossly overstated because of our media environment and the method in which we poll. And I think the vast majority of people, if you take them away from a spotlight and they don't have to perform for their family and friends or anything and ask them, seriously, do you really believe that? They're like, no, no. Well, that's that's good news. I'm glad to hear that. I think so. I think (laughs) my big takeaway is most Americans have a whole lot in common. We have differences in how we might want to solve problems, but we basically believe the same things. I, I, I actually agree with that generally. We have some real issues with the reach of the organs that are playing fast and loose with the truth. But I think people are way more complicated and smart in general than we give them credit for. And, and this is a little bit of a tangent, Nathaniel, but you know, if you want to talk about why this is and how... Uh, folks like Trump, and and in all fairness, you could even argue AOC on the left, could potentially command so much of airwave time. It goes a lot to how media works and how our electoral systems work and the primaries. And it just rewards more and more of the loudmouths. Yeah. I, I've, noticed, I've noticed that on your podcast, we've had some overlap in our interests. Um, you know, like we're both looking at some of the reformers who are interested in ranked choice voting or other uh, improvements to the electoral process that that incent more centrist or less showboating, you know, by our politicians. Yeah, exactly. Like, I have no problems if you have a very liberal point of view or a very conservative point of view, but do it because of genuine belief, you know, versus what I think now happens is, People have figured out this is a game and how do I game this system and game the media and game the primaries to win? It's just, it's so. Or just to get, or to raise money, Marjorie Taylor Greene making the news every day with something outrageous. Exactly. I mean. None of us can really be happy about that. Right. MTJ, Lauren Boebert, you know, a handful of these people. The Republicans still have 230. Yeah, but there are 230 people in the House that are Republican, yeah. right? Roughly speaking. Yeah. yeah. What do we want to say? 20, 30 people you think are really extreme? That's still about 10%. And by the I way, if we want to really pick off that, on the but... left, we could pick there too. But I would still say you could at least argue that 50% of each block is probably reasonable. And my point is 
that's actually at least representing most of the country. It just, we never hear of them because they're not interesting from a news standpoint and a social media standpoint. They're boring. So as a business, how many subscribers do you need to break even to make a profit? Are you there? How are you doing in sort of the the core metrics of having a workable enterprise? Yeah. So some of it uh, as a private company, we keep somewhat confidential, but I'm not, I'm not too strict about these things. We need tens of thousands of subscribers to be profitable and growing and we're there. So we have tens of thousands of subscribers. We're not a massive enterprise and rolling in money. It's still tough. How many staff? Uh, it's just still three full-timers and five part-timers. So it's pretty small. And you are between 10 and 50,000 in subscribers. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. That's yeah. Right. yeah. That's a substantial number of people to take to benefit from your work. It's also, you know, like you talked about 4 million for Tucker being not a big number. You're not there. What's your aspiration? Yeah, no, the aspiration is very much to be in the tens of millions. Our thesis that we've told everyone we've ever met, investors and the like, is that there's a big market out there. There are a lot of Americans, regular people, that we number in the order of around 100 million plus that would want our product if they could hear about it. So there's a big, big marketing phase that we have to push towards. When you're working on a consumer sort of enterprise, you're hoping, I think, that your subscribers are telling more than one other person to, so that you have like a self-improving enterprise. Anywhere near that? No. Uh, so yes, we do have great word of mouth, but the metric is you need on average, at least every subscriber tell one other subscriber or slightly or more. A than little that. more because you're getting some drop off. Somewhere. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So what happens is uh, the part that we can measure, which is because people send like a referral link or something that we can see is great. You know, like some minority fraction refer three or more people. It's fabulous, but it's still a minority. And then some of it happens word of mouth, which I'll never know about, but it's not everyone. The truly viral growth metrics are extremely rare. It happens once in, I don't know, a thousand startups. You can count them on one hand. It's. Do you think there's something yet to come in the way you present the product, in the way that you find the articles, in the way that you uh, incent people to refer it or give you that word of mouth? Is there something that can be done that makes this just naturally growing without, say, advertising dollars or whatever? I think actually not. There are some organic things we can do. Yes, I think the referrals could be a little bit better. I think there's some partnerships and collaborations we could do with publishers that could help us because we want, look, ultimately we're in the business of showcasing the best work of every publisher. That's what we want to do. We're not about denigrating anyone. We want to show their best work. If we can convince organizations that, hey, put this widget on your site, it shows off your best work. By the way, it sends us some traffic as well, which is really nice. You don't want to do advertising, but would you take advertising in a sense from the best news outlets that they could highlight their whole outlet on yeah. your site? Is that something you'd be That's open to? That's what I'm to? thinking. So I yeah. think there are these kinds of collaborations with publishers that are good for them and ancillary benefit for us because of branding and traffic and stuff. I think those could do some really wonderful things on an organic growth standpoint. 
But I'm also coming around to the fact that if you build a consumer business, Nathaniel, like I said, with exceedingly rare exceptions like Instagram, the reality is it is a big marketing nut. Talk to anybody from P&G on downwards. It is a big marketing nut. And one of the things I learned way too late in the game is that I'm not a great marketer. And if I could do it over, I should have hired a co-founder in marketing way earlier. We have you hired, do, do you have someone now? We do. We do. Coincidentally, yeah. my sister, who's amazing, but we should have hired her at least a year earlier, if not two. Um, be that as may, marketing is a undervalued part of building a business, especially a consumer business. And I've come around to not only do I need great talent there, you need budget. You have to spend. You've got to build. I'm wondering if there's like a critical mass that you reach where like people just are talking about it. They know it like you reach a certain threshold. And I'm wondering further if consolidation with some of the other folks who are doing similar work is something that you've thought about. I've thought about it more sort of from a whimsical standpoint and not because I think all of us are way too small to really be meaningful. Yeah, I think eventually there's some big player out there that might want to gobble people up. Maybe it's us. Or you might be that player, yeah. Yeah, might be us. So that'd be nice. Yeah, I do think there's definitely that phase that's coming. It's weird. You know, I think about why does, let's take an example. Why does Uber advertise? I mean, everyone's talking about it. Who doesn't know what Uber is anymore? So why do they keep advertising? Why are they buying logos on fancy European soccer teams and all this thing that costs tens of millions of dollars? There's something about consumer where you must remain on the minds of people, whether it's implicit or explicit. I think it's just the cost of doing business. Visa. Visa is a ridiculous advertiser. For what? Who the hell doesn't have a visa or know what a visa is? But they still do it. So I think marketing spend, there's like a baseline that you just have in consumer that you just have to accept. It's horrible, but I think you have to accept it. That's rough. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Did you, did you raise um, money for this? We did. Yeah. We yeah. raised uh, from a few VCs and a whole bunch of angels. So a lot? Seven figures. Okay. Um, have you used it all up? <laughs> <laughs> We've used a lot. We would like more. How about that? <laughs> so are you still raising? Yeah. So we're raising yeah. slash also, uh, yeah, we're raising. We're, I mean, talk to any good founder. You're always raising. How about that? <laughs> What else would you like people to know about your enterprise that we haven't talked about? I think we've covered a lot. What I'd say is at a high level, come check it out. The Factual. Yeah. Go to thefactual.com, sign up for the newsletter, see what it's like. It's free. Try the trial. See what happens. Why did you start a podcast and how has that been for you? The podcast has been great. It was the idea of our CMO, my sister, uh, Anita, who said, this is a way to really Start building the movement. One of the things that I really didn't understand, Nathaniel, it's actually a question you asked me early in the podcast. You said, you know, these guys at Tangle and all sides. And for the longest time, I thought everyone was a competitor. And I've come around to realizing that, no, we're all in the same fight. And we're all fighting the same bad guy, if you will. And so the podcast was a way to say, we should be highlighting leaders of the unbiased movement, all these people out there in the world in all these different fields who have very interesting ideas that probably appeal to the masses that would never get the time of day because they're just not sexy, but they are unbiased. 
we should highlight them. So who have you highlighted on the podcast that that like you found really important or interesting? I love every one of our guests without exception. Let me give you a few names. Jonah Goldberg, who is the former Fox News slash now CNN. He's the founder of The Dispatch, used to be a National Review. Amazing guy. Such an interesting, such a funny guy. So intelligent. You don't have to agree with his views, but I think it's just a good, good discussion. And actually gets a lot, by the way, Nathaniel, to the difference between conservatives, Republicans, Trumpists, uh, that whole spectrum. He sort of really cleans that up to really understand that you can be on the right, but not believe all of the right. Similarly, you can be on the left and disagree with parts of the left. That's okay. He was really elucidating that. And I think he did a wonderful job of that. Catherine Gale, who we just interviewed, uh, who was talking about the political reforms and final five voting, so important. The first time I felt hopeful for the future of our democracy is when I heard about what she was doing and the proof that she saw in Alaska's general election that, oh my God, this can actually improve options for all of us at the polls. Very, very inspiring. Our very first one, David Heinemeyer Hansen, fascinating entrepreneur, fascinating guy, talked about why they don't do politics at the workplace and the blowback that he faced. And this is around George Floyd. Really, really interesting. And just a really thoughtful guy. Just so those are just three. Oh, we had Mark Cuban. Mark Cuban was incredible. I mean, such a smart person, such a thoughtful person. How do you I, land Mark Cuban? <laughs> I wrote to him. I just yeah. emailed him. Yeah. I don't know. He was so nice. And so what he's doing with cost plus drugs and lowering the cost of drugs in America, such a good mission. And man, the guy is like, I'm not out to make money. It's supposed to be self-sustaining. I'm the only investor. And he's just going at it. It's incredible. And by the way, we talked a lot about the things that people might think about, like billionaires and what is a capitalist society gone wrong if you have billionaires and why do we even need people like you doing this? Why isn't the government? We talked about lots of very difficult topics. Mark was on point on all of it. He had thought about all of it. But yeah, those are just a smattering of the guests. Um, I'll give you one last one. Angel Eduardo, who is at this organization called FAIR, the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. So brilliant, talking about what it really means to have representation and not tokenistic based on superficial features, but true representation. It makes you feel so excited to be part of a nation where you can think that way. It's really cool. Always in the back of my mind in this podcast is what's good for our country, what helps repair and improve our democracy. That's, and so for me, I like to talk to people who are working on that, people who have many different perspectives, some trying to be unbiased and trying to cure the problem of people disbelieving the news, some people running progressive organizations, because in, in this time, I think there is a big difference between the parties in terms of who is working on protecting democracy and who's trying to break it apart. But I appreciate a lot your time and what you're doing in your project. Is there anything else you want to say? No, that's it. It's been fantastic. Thank you so much for having me, Nathaniel. Yeah, all of us that are in this battle together, um, it makes me feel so much more hopeful about this nation. It's not lost. Yeah, there's a big fight to be had still. And that fight will endure even after I'm dead. But there's so many good people who really want a better nation. And like you said, 
even if I disagree with their views, the hard liberal, the hard conservative, I don't care. If your heart's in the right place, that I will always admire. You get more people like that, we're going to have a better country. Yeah, well, I think you're one of those people. So uh, <laughs> thank you for your time. That was Arjun Morthy. Arjun is at thefactual.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.